Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we are the Minimalists. We're here with Malabama. Hi, everybody. We've got the rest of our team here in the studio as well. we got Jordan and Professor Sean and Danny Unknown and, of course, Podcast Sean and Post-Production Peter. Oh, wait, we seem to be missing someone. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we got to wait for TK. Hold on, guys. We're going to have to do this again. <laughs> <laughs> no, TK is actually in Detroit this week. He's speaking at several different schools there, showing uh, some kids the the value of living with less yeah. and also uh, teaching them about basic economics and some other things. So TK will be back with us next week. Don't worry, we have a special guest. You'll be introduced to her here in a moment on this episode. I think we should probably start with our callers, Ryan. If you have a question or comment for our show, you can give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you're a private podcast subscriber so we can prioritize your question. Our first question today is from Joy. My 70-year-old mother is living with me. She's on social security and only gets by with help of my father, her ex-husband, reluctantly, and me. She's been mentally abusive since I can remember, but she is totally oblivious to it. She's quite delirious in many areas, and I say that with some respect. I told her my only rule for living in my house was going to therapy, a decision I started questioning asking. After knowing what I do about changing people, acceptance, expectations, I've still done everything. Begged countless times, thinking if I show how painful this is for me, she would go. If she doesn't live in my house, she's homeless. Her living here is causing me such mental agony. Us living together was always extremely toxic, and I feel incredibly stuck. She's living in my daughter's room while my daughter is cramped in mine. I consider her a level one hoarder and has a major shopping addiction. She doesn't respect any of my rules around bringing things into my house. My house is now cluttered. Lately, I felt that maybe I should put focus on grieving her. Even though she's 10 feet away from me, our relationship is completely done, and I've asked her to not speak to me as much as possible until she has gotten some help, Hmm. making this feel similar to a death. But it was a boundary I felt necessary. Hmm. Knowing I cannot change or force someone to get help if they don't want to, but being forced to live live together, where do I go from here? Joining us in the studio today to help us answer this question and several other questions as well is Lori Gottlieb. She's not only a therapist, but she's the author of this new book, although it's a journal, really. It's called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, The Journal. And as you can see, I have a whole lot of tabs here, Lori. We're going to be diving deep into this book today. Ladies and gentlemen, Lori Gottlieb. Yeah! (laughs) Now, it's a warm introduction, but for a very serious question. Yes. Joy's question, she has a mother who she perceives to be disrespectful, to not be attentive to her needs, to her desires, to the family dynamic that we have going on here. 
And I think it's probably important to highlight, I'm really interested in, in your point of view here, that every relationship has some sort of cost of admission, right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm not going to be in a relationship, a business relationship, friendship with Ryan if he's constantly disrespectful to me or if he doesn't appreciate my own desires, my own wants, my own needs out of life. But I wanted to start with a chapter from your, not a chapter, a a selection from your book here. This is on page 76. And you have a quote here. Our relationships can't change until we have something new to bring to them. Mm. Yeah. Now, Ryan's been using the journal as well. Yeah. And uh, maybe you could talk about that in a little bit here. But I thought that was a great quote to start to address Joy's conundrum that she's having with her mother. Yeah, that's that's exactly where I was going to go, um, which is that I think that she's expecting that she's going to have some kind of relationship with her mother that she's wanted for a very long time. And that if she sets boundaries and then her mother gets help, that something will change with the mother. Um, but nothing's really going to change with the mother because she's not changing. And so she needs to, first of all, understand what her mother's limitations are. And I think that the when she said she's grieving already, like as if she's dead, I think what she's grieving is the relationship that she wanted to have with her mother that she's probably not going to have. That is not who her mother is. So that's where the grieving comes in. And that's where the fight is that she's having. She's having this fight, like, I need you to be this person. I'm being very reasonable. Why can't you be reasonable? Mm. Right? Um, and And so I think she needs to kind of change what her, um, the dance that she's doing with her mother, you know, we all do these, this dance with somebody else, right? And so if you change your dance steps, the other person either has to change their dance steps or they're just going to fall flat on the floor. Mm -hmm. So she needs to change her dance steps, which is obviously her mother has not responded well to, hey, you need to get help. Her mother doesn't seem interested in that. Um, you know, she's telling her mother, don't talk to me as much as possible, which doesn't seem like a very tenable Mm. situation. Um, So I think it's more about grieving that her mother is not the person and she's not going to have the relationship that she wanted. But could she have a different relationship where she doesn't have those kinds of expectations? And what will happen if she changes and then maybe the mother doesn't feel so criticized, disliked, um, you know, unwelcome? What might happen there? Mm. Man, I got a lot of empathy for Joy. I um, I, and I'm not the only one who's got, you know, mom and dad issues. I mean, I think everyone's got them to a certain extent. Um, Yeah, I mean, for me... Uh, and my mother specifically. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to like talk about uh, Joy's question here in an observational way rather than like prescribing Joy something here. But so that's what I'll do. I'll talk about my my relationship with my mom. Um, I wanted our relationship to be a certain way, and I wanted that ever since I was a kid. Um, it did not go that way. Um, in fact, it went probably the completely opposite direction of where I wish you know a, a mother son relationship would be. So what I did um, when I got older and, um, you know, got my own job, got out of the house is I pretty much stopped talking to her. And, um, you know, she would call me up and, hey, why don't you talk to me? And, you know, you don't call me enough and da, da, da. And I'm like, mom, like, I love you. But, you know, here are the issues that I have. And um, I, I, I don't I don't owe you anything, you know, like, I don't know what else to say. That was not the best approach because it didn't foster anything between my mom and I. Hmm. And I'll tell you, the last like six or seven years, I've been working really hard to have a good relationship with her. 
and where it started um, was I had this kind of revelation about, I don't know, I was having like a pity party party for myself. Like, oh, you know, mom doesn't understand me. She doesn't get my struggles, you know. And He's very emo. Yeah, it's very emo. I was listening <laughs> to uh, some Fallout Boy. And, <laughs> and But then it hit me. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Um, you know, I want my mom to understand my battles. And my mom has her own battles that I refuse to try and understand. Um, and it hit me where I was like, oh, if I want this relationship to go anywhere, I have to be the one who shows my mom that I at least understand where she's coming from. And then that will hopefully open up a possibility for her to kind of, you know, see where I'm coming from. And I called her up one day and I said, hey, mom, I just want to let you know. Um, I was sitting around thinking and um, I had this huge epiphany that um, I've never really showed you how I understand that you have a lot going on. And I really want to not just understand your battles, but I want to respect your battles. And in order for uh, for me to do that, um, you know, we need to figure out uh, what, you know, what you need, what I need. So let's talk about that. And I, Hey, what do you need? And she kind of just asked me, you know, call her once a week and, um, a couple other things. And I'm like, great, I would do that for you. Absolutely, mom. And I'll tell you when I did that, she started to, um, see my battles and started to respect, respect my battles a little bit more. And we still, you know, get into it sometimes. But, you know, like Josh said, every relationship is going to have some type of cost. But I'll tell you, like, when I when I approach it in that way of looking at my mom, uh, because I, cause I do love her. And to love someone is to, you know, see them for who they are without wanting to change them. And, and that's the approach that I've taken with my mom. And um, man, like going out of my way to show her that not only do I respect her battles, but I, I hear what her problems are. And um, just be a good listener. Like that has completely changed our relationship. You know, one more thing I'll say too, that was really hard for me to accept was, you know, we all think parents should be a certain way. Yeah. You know, um, I don't, I, I don't know why uh, this is, but you know, I expected my mom and dad to know everything. They had me, my dad was 22. My mom was 20 and I am 41 years old right now. I don't have a lot figured out. <laughs> so I don't know why my younger self would expect my mother and my father to have a figured out at 20 and 22. Um, and then what that kind of led me to was I have to be the parent to my parent. And that is such a difficult thing. I, I, I would say more, you have to be the teacher to your parents. Mm. Because I think that we don't want to have to parent our parents. Um, you know, when we're young, we call that the parentified child, which is, you know, your parents haven't sort of grown up and you're the child who kind of sees what needs to happen and you take all this on all this sort of adult responsibility. And that's that's really problematic. Mm. Um, when we get older and we're adults and we feel like, okay, I don't rely on my parents in the same way, but emotionally, we still want our parents to be our parents. And so I think that if you think about it as being the teacher... That, that that my parents, the, I'm talking for you now, mm -hmm. were 20 and 22 when they had me and they didn't know a lot. And I have the benefit of having done work on myself. I have the benefit of having learned a lot of things. And I actually can teach them things that will not only help them, but will help our relationship. You know, I have a, a podcast called the Dear Therapist Podcast, and we had someone come on and he was saying, you know, I, I, I'm having this child and my, my parents didn't know how to sort of be parents to me. And I don't want them to do that, 
around the grandchild and I want to be a good dad. And we really help this person to see like you have some things to be, you have knowledge to be a teacher to your parents. And it really changed the relationship, especially with his dad. The mom was a little less open to it at first, but then she came around. The dad was very receptive to it. Mm. So I think if we if we think about it that way. Also, the other thing you mentioned that comes to mind is a lot of times, like when I see couples, for example, it's always about like, you go first, you need to change first. And we do that with our parents. Like, mm-hmm. you need to change mom and dad, right? Before yeah. I will change. You want me to call once a week? Okay, but you got to do this stuff for me. Like, you've got to right. be the parent. And I think that what we see is it's not about who goes first. It's about somebody, again, needs to change their dance steps. Yeah. If you need to change your dance steps first, they will change their dance steps. might not be right away. It might not be in exactly the way you want. But eventually, you will start to see some movement on the other side. Oh, yeah. I love that context of being a teacher. That is so much more powerful than thinking about, yeah, me having to be uh, my mom's parent. But, you know, it's interesting because what she needed from me, I needed from her. Mm-hmm. And I totally was in the space of like, well, she's my mom, so she's going to have to be the one who gives in first. And then it becomes transactional. Yes. Yeah. Which isn't love at all. And I know that's not what Joy is going for here. What Joy is trying to understand is, how do I make this dynamic work? Because we're dancing two completely different dances right now. Mm. And we want to be careful not to moralize any of this either. Yes, your mom might be a level one hoarder. I was a level two or level three hoarder. If you look at the whole, we did a whole podcast episode about hoarding and the five different stages of hoarding. That's not a morally bad thing. It's a problem for her and it's especially a problem for you if the stuff is getting in the way. And so when I talk about the cost of admission for a relationship, We know right now that if your mom was coming to your house and beating your walls with a sledgehammer, you would say, hey, you have to get out of my house. This is unacceptable. The cost of admission is you can't beat my walls down with a sledgehammer, right? But now you have to understand what is your non-negotiable or your series of your your list of non-negotiables. Here are the things that can't happen if you want to live under this roof with me. And if you understand that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get too pedantic and make the list of 150 items that can't possibly be followed. But what does respect look like to you? Because my guess is your mom doesn't even understand the ways in which you perceive you're being disrespected. That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, she doesn't realize that, you know, when you're a hoarder, you don't really realize that other people might not might not feel the same way about this. That's right. Um, and I and I think the other thing is, too, when somebody doesn't realize they have a problem and you keep telling them to go to therapy, she's kind of like, I don't understand what the problem is. Uh-huh. Mm. Right. So so there's that going on. And I think the, the, the other thing I was thinking about when I was listening to her voicemail was this idea that she said, you know, if I don't take her in, she will be homeless. Mm. And I really wonder about that when people come into therapy and they say, you know, like I'm trapped in this way. Often they're not actually trapped. There might be a, a less than ideal, you know, solution to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't mean that the only solution is that her mother has to live with her. You know, it reminds me of, in, in maybe you should talk to someone in the book that led to the journal, there's this scene where I'm with my therapist and he said, you know, you remind me of this prisoner. It, it's a cartoon, it's a cartoon. You remember this cartoon and it's a prisoner shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out. 
but on the right and the left, it's open. And you can walk no around bars. You can walk around the bars. Mm. So many of us feel like that. We're like shaking the bars. I'm trapped. I'm trapped. I'm trapped. Even though it's open on the right and the left. So what keeps us from walking around the bars? And in Joy's case, I don't know her, but it might be that she's really hoping that she can have a different relationship with her mom. Mm-hmm. That she's just not even aware of this. Right. You know, in her, in her mind, she's like, no, 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 that's not what I want. I don't want her to live with me and all that. But maybe there's a part of her and mm-hmm. maybe the younger part of her that feels like maybe something different could happen here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was in a similar predicament. When I, was, when I was 19, my mom had a real bad alcohol problem and I started working more so I could pay my mom's rent because I wasn't going to be living with mom. Mm. And so for me, it meant, now I'm not suggesting this to Joy necessarily, but it, it, it was empowering to know that the story I was telling myself, oh, my mom's going to be homeless if she doesn't live with me. Well, Okay, maybe that's true, but maybe there's an alternative solution as well. One other thing I'd like to say is I want to get really clear on the, well, you say she's emotionally abusive. Okay, but you can say that to her. She may have no idea what that even means. I want to get specific. What does that emotional abuse look like? I really don't like when you say this. I really don't like when you talk to me this way. When you raise your voice in these scenarios, it makes me feel unheard. Mm. Right. And and also the thing about boundaries that a lot of people don't understand is they feel like I'm setting a boundary. And if the other person doesn't do the thing that I request, then the boundary has been broken. The boundary is something we hold with ourselves. So what I mean by that is if you say to someone, you know, um, I don't like it when you yell at me. That really upsets me. Please don't yell at me anymore. That's not really a boundary. A boundary is You say, I don't like it when you yell at me. This is what happens for me when you yell at me. It really scares me. I I don't like it. It's disrespectful. And if you yell at me, I am going to end the phone call, leave the room, you know, whatever you're going to do. And then the boundary is with yourself. Mm -hmm. Are you going to do the thing you said you were going to do? And so many times we say, oh, they didn't they didn't respect my boundary. And then I'm helpless. Mm. You're not helpless. You have a plan for what you're going to do if someone doesn't respond to your request. A boundary is a request. And then it's it's the limit that you set with yourself. I will do this. Maybe for her, it's if my mom continues to act in this way, even though I've requested, um, I'm going to figure out a way for her to live somewhere else. Yes. Yeah. And the boundaries I found in my own life. Yes, people will trample your boundaries if you let them, but I was often the one trampling my own boundaries. Mm. And so when we set a boundary, we set it for a reason, and it may be difficult to stick to it because recognizing there are consequences. If someone's not willing to pay the cost of admission for being in this relationship with me, then I need to hold up my end of the bargain. I'm getting a cue from Professor Sean over here. If you hear a little ding in your ear, it's because uh, he's telling us to wrap up in a meaningful way. Uh, Joy, I want to send you a copy of the journal. Maybe you should talk to someone and we're going to be going through this on the rest of the podcast as well. I think you'll find immense value in this book, in this journal, and we'll talk more about it here in a second. But our next question is from Zachary. My name is Zachary Lutz. I am from Virginia and I am a true fan patron. My grandfather passed not too long ago. My family and myself are all okay, all things considered. I think I am struggling with the grieving of his passing. I find myself ruminating on the thoughts, feelings, and emotions that arose since I knew of his stage four cancer diagnosis and death shortly afterwards. 
What insights do you have for the grieving and processing of the feelings, emotions, and thoughts that arise during major life-changing events such as death of a loved one? Lori, I see grief as a byproduct of love in, in some respect, right? And so grieving is natural. You have this part of the journal here where you talk about forced forgiveness. And I think this is almost the inverse of that, where we feel as though grieving is bad and I shouldn't be grieving or mm. I already grieved for 24 hours. Why shouldn't I stop now? Right? I still feel this sense of grief. So a forced stopping of grief is not a way to love someone either. Can you talk a bit about grief? Yes, of course. First of all, I just want to say about forced forgiveness. Forced forgiveness is a little bit different. It's talking about what we were talking about just a minute ago, which is, um, you know, people say, oh, when you forgive someone, it will set you free. Mm. Now, for some people, maybe. Mm. But what I found is that more often people are told you need to forgive someone, you know, you need to forgive your parent for not being able to raise you in the way or be there for you and, you know, or or for being emotionally abusive or physically abusive or whatever it is, or you need to forgive your partner for cheating on you or, you you know, whatever it Mm. might be. Um, And that is really detrimental, I think. So I always say to people, you can have compassion for someone without forgiving them. So you can have compassion for the fact that your parents were young and they didn't know what they were doing and they didn't give you what you needed when you were younger. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean you need to forgive them. It means you can have a lot of compassion. I feel so much compassion for what they must have gone through. And if you don't truly forgive it, then that's okay. You can honor those feelings. But Mm. in terms of grieving... um, you know, I, I think that people have a big misconception about grief that, you know, there's a certain time limit to it or that you're going to have closure mm. um, or that, you know, you'll come to a point where you're done. Mm-hmm. And I think if you really loved the person and you experienced that loss, that loss will live inside you forever. Mm. It will just live inside you in different ways. And I think that is a testament to the love and connection and the meaning that this relationship had in your life. Mm. And I think that especially with men, so we, you know, we have this guy calling in so many times people will kind of shut it down because they're so uncomfortable with like men feeling sadness and grief and be strong. You know, Mm. you'll get over this or, Hey man, it's okay. Man up. Right. Right. (laughs) Instead of just like, yeah, that's so hard. And to be able to acknowledge that and sit with someone, I think what people who are grieving need is presence. Mm. They need someone who can sit with them in their grief, to sit with them in their sadness and just be present and let them feel the loss. Mm. And so there's this model that a lot of people use, you know, people say, oh, there are these stages of grief, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and the, you know, um, depression, anger, bargaining, uh, what is it? Um, it's uh, eventually you get to acceptance, acceptance, right, right, right yeah. at the end, right? <laughs> um, and um, and oh, it's denial. Sorry, it's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, uh-huh. and. It's that was actually formulated for people who were grieving their own deaths. It was for terminally ill patients. Mm, so it was oh, like, wow. how do you deal with your own, like knowing that you're going to die? Mm-hmm. And those are the stages people go through. It's denial, anger, bargaining. No, maybe, you know, um, yeah. you know, the, and then it's like depression, acceptance. Um, and what the, the, you know, what happens for the people who are left behind is not that there are not stages, first of all. 
Um, the other misconception about those stages is that they happen in order, whereas in reality, they bounce around and you kind of go back and forth between them. Um, but there's this other model of grief that I, I find so much more useful, and that's where you integrate the loss into your life. So it's not like you're done with it. It's that it just becomes a piece of your story. Mm. And I think we need to integrate all the different parts of ourselves into our stories. Yeah, that's, yeah, the stories we tell ourselves are so important. Um, I want to ask you about forgiveness. What, what is forgiveness? What is that, what can that give someone? Like, let me give you an example. So my stepfather, very physically abusive, um, I got to a point over the last few years where I started to have compassion for him, where I was like, oh, like he must have had so much trauma in his life that he's like passing that trauma on to me. And I started to have compassion for him just as a human being. Like I tried to remove myself and look at it and look at his upbringing and realize like, oh, wow, like he's he's a very hurt person. And that compassion... I don't know if the compassion led to forgiveness or if their forgiveness led to compassion, but there was an aspect of it where I was eventually able to forgive him. And, um, you know, I actually look forward to, um, cause I haven't told him that I have forgiven him. Um, but like the next time I go home, I'm going to like take him out to dinner and I'm going to sit him down and I'm just going to like show him compassion and be like, Hey man, I, I forgive you. Like there is no hurt feelings. Like, you know, it's, um, it's for me, it just feels like a big weight lifted off my shoulders. What what else about forgiveness or is there anything else about forgiveness that, that someone, you know, can really get from that, like from forgiving someone that has really wronged them? Right. So in your case, you truly came to forgiveness. And what I mean about forced forgiveness is so many times people say you have to forgive this person right, right. and they don't. And maybe they never will. And that's okay. Yeah. It doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't mean that you're not emotionally generous. You can, again, understand why they did what they did mm-hmm. um, and have compassion for, you know, whatever went on that made them act in that way. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean you have to forgive them. I think for people like you, where you got to a place kind of organically over a lot of years yeah. and through compassion, and it, and it was through the root of compassion. Yeah. Because you, you understand, like, that's what we call generational trauma, where people have trauma, they haven't dealt with it, and they pass it along mm-hmm. to the next generation. And And somebody has to be the generation who stops it. And you are doing that. So you've done the work. Whoever's going to do the work is going to be the generation where they say, I'm not going to pass this down. Mm. I'm going to stop this because I have the tools that the earlier generations did not have. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that forgiveness for me, it's given me, like I said, a weight off my shoulders, but also has given me, um, has given me like the, the tools to, yes, stop the generational trauma. Right. And I think that what comes with that is a sense of empowerment. You know, it's a sense of, I don't need this person to heal me because I am healing myself. And in my healing, I've come to realize that all of the things that they did were not about me. And I think that when you stop personalizing other people's behavior, when you realize, wow, they are doing this because of something with them. It's kind Mm -hmm. of like going back to the stories. You know, people tell me in therapy so often, like, you know, I was told this when I was younger about myself, like these, you know, negative stories about themselves. Like you're always this or you're this or you're lazy or you're, you know, whatever it is. And that is really, you know, much more about the storyteller Mm. than it is about the person who's told the story. Mm. 
So the storyteller is the person who's damaged. The storyteller is the person who has all this stuff that they haven't worked on. And they are simply using that to tell a story that makes them feel good about themselves in the moment. If I can put you down, that lifts me up. Yeah. Right. If I can say this about you, I have more control in my life. And when we're young, we can't differentiate the storyteller from the story. Right. But now we can. Mm. And now you have an accurate story. Wow. My stepfather had whatever experiences he had. It wasn't about me. I wasn't bad. I wasn't wrong. I wasn't damaged. It was wrong what he did. Um, But I can see that and I forgive that. That's where you've come to. Yeah. And it it does feel so good to get to that spot. Speaking of trauma, we have a question here from Kathy. Hi, this is Kathy. I have general anxiety and PTSD, and I've been working with therapists and on my own. I no longer have the massive panic attacks, but at times anxiety sneaks up and it comes across in text to my adult children or when speaking in person. I have the knowledge um, but how do I let go of the embarrassment of the reoccurrence and accept myself? Um, I think I'm so afraid of damaging my relationships with my family. So, Lori, on page 30 of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, the journal, you say, sometimes people can't identify their feelings because they were talked out of them as children. Mm. And there's something so powerful there. I will often remind myself that my feelings don't exist in the sense that they don't exist outside of me. They are some sort of reaction or response to maybe an internalized trauma or a expectation that I have or a belief that I have that is doesn't map onto reality even, right? Mm. So can you talk to... Kathy a bit about these feelings that she's experiencing. And also, it sounds to me like she wants to avoid traumatizing her own children. Yeah, yeah. So um, this idea that, um, you know, we're talked out of our feelings, I think so many times people will come into therapy and they don't really know what they feel. They might know sort of top level feelings like anger, right? Mm. Um, Because anger is like, you know, if you think of it as like an iceberg, it's like above the surface and you can see it. But underneath the anger are the more tender feelings like rejection, Mm. shame, um, you know, sadness. A lot of times we get angry when we're sad. Mm. Um, You know, like you feel like in in a relationship, you're angry at your partner, but really you're sad or you feel hurt or you feel rejected. So I I think that, you know, what happens as kids um, is often, you know, the kid will come home and they'll say like, I'm really sad about this thing that happened at school. And they'll be like, the parent will say, don't be sad. Let's go get some ice cream. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not that the parent is is being sort of like, um, you know, I, I think most of the time adults are uncomfortable with our own feelings mm-hmm. and then we're really uncomfortable with our kids' feelings. Mm-hmm. So we're fine when they're feeling joy, but if they're feeling anything else, we get really anxious about it because we don't know how to deal with our own feelings. That's right. We yeah. don't know how to deal with our own anxiety, anger, sadness, whatever it might be. And so your kid comes home and they're like, oh, I'm really worried about this test tomorrow. Oh, don't worry. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. You know, so we talk them out of it instead of sitting with them. Mm-hmm. So the three words you you can use when someone brings you, the, when your kid brings you those feelings, when your partner brings you those feelings, when your friend brings you those feelings is, tell me more. Yes. 
Mm. That's all you need to do. You don't need to fix it. You don't need to get rid of their sadness, anxiety, anger, whatever it is. You say, tell me more. Mm -hmm. And what you do for kids when you do that is you give them experience feeling their feelings. Mm -hmm. They can identify their feelings. Oh, I'm feeling sad. They know it's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. They know that someone can sit with them in that, that they're not alone in it. So they might say, yeah, this is what happened at lunch and someone didn't sit with me and it was really, I'm really sad about that. You say, oh, tell me more. And then usually the kid will start talking and they'll say, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe I should talk to her about it. Maybe I should sit with someone else tomorrow. Maybe Mm -hmm. I should try this. And they realize there are solutions that they can feel sad and that they can feel competent with dealing with their feelings. Mm -hmm. If you tell a kid, oh, I don't feel sad about this, or I'm really upset about this. You know, like when you when you say to your kid, like, no, you can't have pizza tonight. And they're like, I'm really upset. And you say, you're so entitled. What's wrong with you? Mm, right? Yeah. Right? We say those kinds of things all the time, as right. opposed to like, yeah, I know you're really sad we're not having pizza, but we're having this. Just acknowledge it. Mm-hmm, you yeah. know, you're really upset about that. Yeah, you're not wrong for having the feelings that you have. It doesn't yeah. mean they exist outside of you. Right. Last night, my daughter was telling me, that avocado mayonnaise is disgusting. And I was trying to, well, I did explain to her, tell me, tell me more, yeah. quite literally, tell me more, but also helping her understand that that is not a universal, mm-hmm. it is a preference of hers. And right. she's not wrong for having that preference either. Mm. You may desire to have pizza even if we're not having it tonight. Right. And it's totally fine for you to have that desire. You're not wrong for it. You're not a bad person. I don't want to moralize your preferences, right? Mm. And also, it's like, you know, when when kids are angry, we're so afraid of their anger. Mm-hmm. Um and we, and we minimize it. Like, how can you be upset about that? Look at all look at all the, the privileges you have. Mm-hmm. You have a roof over your head and food on the table, right? You know, like those kinds of narratives or or I know you're angry at your brother, but like, don't be angry. Don't be angry. And it's like, it's okay that you're angry that your brother did this, but you can't yell at him. You can't hit him, right? right? So what else can you do with your anger? So yeah, I get why you're angry. I would be angry too. I get that. Mm-hmm. But like, let's talk about, you know, how can you talk to your brother about why you're angry? Can you have a conversation about it? Mm. And, and what you're talking about here, it always starts with questions instead of prescriptions. Curiosity. Yeah. Yes, because if we are saying you shouldn't be angry or do these three things to not be angry, like it's going to piss the kid off even more, right? They're going to feel totally shut down and invalidated. So when they grow up, what happens is they become adults who don't have access to their feelings because the minute they feel something, then they say, oh, that's bad. That's Mm. bad. I shouldn't feel that. So I'm just going to block it out. And they don't even know they're blocking it out. And then it comes out in behaviors. So when we don't have the space to say, I feel this or to acknowledge what we feel to ourselves, it'll come out in like too much food or too much alcohol or kind of, you know, insomnia. It comes out in all kinds of ways because you're feeling all these feelings, but they have nowhere to go. They need air. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Tell me more. That's a great, uh, a great tip on how to be a good listener. I am guilty of this so bad with, um, and I've gotten better over the past few years, but not just with kids, but like with my wife, with my mom, with my sister, they're upset about something. And I have the greatest explanation as to why they shouldn't be upset. Yeah, you call Ryan up because he's the problem solver, right? <laughs> and so, like, at least that's the the, the narrative. In fact, he, right. if that's he, what I tell myself. Well, if we made a made a business card for him, it would be Ryan knows how to solve problems. There's no question about that, especially in really high stress situations. However, 
when Mariah, his wife, comes to him with an ailment or something that's wrong, <laughs> she may not be looking for you to solve the problem. Right. And I do the same thing, especially with my daughter is, oh, you've got some sort of gripe. You're not experiencing perpetual bliss. Let me fix that for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let yes. me explain it away. Yes. Well, that, that's the thing, too, is when you talk about listening, it's we don't generally ask the person who came to us how we can help them. So we listen in the way that we would want to be listened to. So if you were coming to someone with that problem, you might want them to say, oh, here's what you do, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily how they want to be listened to. Also, people want to be listened to differently in different situations and in different moments. So it's not like, oh, last time she just wanted me to listen and be there, but this time she wants me to brainstorm ideas with her. I'm confused. Mm. It's like, just ask like, oh, I understand. How can I be helpful? Do you want a hug right now? Do you want me to just listen to what's going on? Do you just want to vent? Do you want me to come up with solutions with you? Yeah. What do you want today? And by the way, when something happens immediately, sometimes people really just want to get the problem out. And then like two days later, they might be like, hey, you know that thing we talked about the other day? Can we talk more about it? And maybe we can talk about maybe some ideas, yeah. right? So just ask, how can I be helpful right now? Yeah. Yeah, that's that goes so much further than trying to explain the emotional way. Well, if I was you, I wouldn't feel this way. And here's why. Yeah. I, I yeah. fall into that trap all the time <laughs> yeah, because with my daughter, I'm like, I grew up on food stamps and, right. and alcoholic, <laughs> you know, abusive household. How dare and she's, she has no frame of reference. Yeah. And, oh. even and though, it's irrelevant to her. It's exactly. not her life. Exactly. Right. And, it, and so yeah. I can batter her with my past or even if those feelings arise within me, I can make the decision to pause and instead get curious about her feelings. Well, her experience is different from yours. Mm -hmm. And so it's not her fault that you grew up the way you grew up. (laughs) And so you're kind of blaming her for that. You're saying your feelings don't matter because, you know, it's kind of like the pain Olympics. You're Uh like, well, my pain was worse than yours, so your pain isn't valid. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, that's such a good point. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's hard to accept sometimes, but, you know, what was traumatizing for me um, may or may not be traumatizing if it happened to Josh. And it's the same thing with your daughter. It's like, yes, you grew up in a certain uh, traumatic environment, she has is growing up in a way less traumatic environment than you did, mm-hmm. but her baseline is very different on what's traumatic for her or not. Yeah, so, and, and it's not yeah. my, my past is not relevant for her present. Right, right. Let's check in with some social media questions. Alabama, we got a question from Facebook. Miriam says, "You recently said hope is the measure of future regrets. I don't mind minimizing stuff, but." Why would I need to minimize optimism and hope? Well, yes, hope is a measure of future regrets in one sense. This was from our Kapil Gupta episode, but I feel like we need more context here. Mm. And so first off, just because I make a statement, like here, I'll make a statement for you. Roughly 3,500 people die every year in swimming pools. How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) Now... You could extrapolate from that, oh, we should get rid of swimming pools. I should minimize all swimming pools. That will solve our swimming pool problem, right? right? And what we were talking about in the context of hope is that prescribing hope to someone, as we were talking about earlier with my daughter, I can't tell her, 
oh, you should be more hopeful. Mm. That that doesn't really translate uh, prescribing hope. Mm-hmm. Hope is often a measurement of some sort of expectation that you have. I mean, in fact, another word for hope generally is expectation. I have this expectation. I hope I get this. As uh, one of my mentors, Jim Har, used to say, you can wish in one hand or hope in one hand, and you can crap in the other, see which fills up first. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my stepdad used to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think what he was illustrating is like, you can hope, 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 right? But it may not, hope alone is not going to get you what you want. However, I'm not telling, what's her name? Miriam, Miriam. that you should minimize hope. You've extrapolated that from a simple maxim of hope is a measurement of future regrets. Yeah, I would kind of reframe that, though, in the sense that you're right. You know, there's that famous quote, hope is not a strategy. Um. So, so you know, if you just hope and you don't take action, then nothing's really going to change. Mm-hmm. You know, we say in therapy, insight is the booby prize of therapy, meaning you can have all the insight in the world. But if you don't make changes out in the world, the insight is useless. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if you understand something. You can't just like hope that something's going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I think that what Miriam is talking about is desire. Yes. And I think desire is great. You know, we often like sort of think of desire as we don't want to talk too much about our desire, that it feels greedy. It feels like too much, especially for women. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, don't desire too much. Mm -hmm. Um, Desire is great, you know, and and it's like, it's like same with envy. You know, when we talk about envy, people say, oh, I don't want to feel envious. And I say, follow your envy. It tells you what you want. Mm. So instead of pushing down your envy and saying, I'm a bad person because I envy what that person has, it's like, what does that tell you about something that's missing in your life right now? And what does it tell you about the small steps that you need to take right now today to go in the direction of getting something like that, your version of that? It might not be exactly Mm -hmm. what that person has, but what is it that you're missing and what steps can you take? What action can you take to achieve that? We can call it desire. We can call it hope. But I think we need to have something to shoot for. And then we need to have that very practical, what actions are you taking every day to get you there? Yeah, no, I love that. I, um, you know, I'm with Miriam here in the sense of when I first heard Josh, you know, say that hope was future regrets, I wanted to push back too and be like, what are you talking about? Like hope is a good thing, which is funny because we moralize it, you know, it's, it's a good thing. Um, and, and what Josh is actually doing with that statement, he's not, saying it's bad. It's just an observation with what hope is. And now that I understand kind of what uh, what Josh is referring to, what Kapil Gupta was referring to, um, it has helped me look at hope as a as a tool in, mm-hmm. a cer- in a certain way. So it can be a tool, like something that I can use for motivation to, uh, you know, I think hope and desire probably um, are synonymous in a lot of cases. Um, or maybe it's a symptom. And, and I'm, I have to look at like, why am I so hopeful on this? It's the same thing with envy or jealousy. When I feel envy or, or jealousy, I don't dwell on it. I don't sit there and let it ruin my day. But I do ask myself like, oh, this is a symptom of something else going on inside me. What is it trying to show me? Right. What is it telling me? Yeah. 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 Um, there's, a, there's a quote in the journal about regret too, because regret was in this. And I think that people can do two, one of two things with regret. And I, I don't remember, uh, I won't be able to quote it exactly. But um, but the idea is that you can either kind of like, you know, just 
curl up in a ball and say, oh, that's terrible. And I regret that. And that's that. Or you can use regret as an engine for change. Mm. Mm. And I think when you use regret as an engine for change, it's really positive that it Mm. just like envy, it teaches you something. Oh, I regret that I didn't pursue my dreams in this way, but what can I do now Mm. to do that? You know, and people are always saying, oh, it's too late. I can't do that. It's too late. And I think in, in my book, and maybe you should talk to someone, there's a story with this, uh, patient that I have, Rita. And, you know, she's she's about to turn 70 and she completely changed it. She, she came in with everything's too late and I regret everything. And she really was able to use the regret as an engine for change. So mm-hmm. I think people come up with all kinds of excuses. And then what happens is 10 years later, they regret that 10 years earlier, they didn't do something with their regret. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll tell you what, if I die with no regrets, I'm really going to regret that. <laughs> <laughs> but I always say to people, think of what think of yourself 10 years into the future. So if you do nothing now, how will you feel 10 years later? Yeah. And and then I think people start to say, oh, maybe I can do something. And, and then I think people get overwhelmed because they think I have to take these huge steps. I have to completely revamp my life. No, you, you can take very small steps. Mm. You know, every day, just take one step toward that goal. And in 10 yes. years, think of how many steps you will have taken. You might be there. I love that. That's why I love this journal. It's because it is a small step approach. Yes. And that's the first quote that, you know, you have in your journal there. And it's beautiful because, well, A, the the room that you give for journaling, you have to be very laser. Yes. Concise. Yes. Yeah. I yes. mean, they talk about, you know, uh, minimalism. Like you have to be very precise, very clear with um, what you want to write down about that day. And for me, um, it has helped me just really lay out um, these small steps that I want to take each day. And 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 the journal actually came about because there's a quote in Maybe You Should Talk to Someone that says, most big transformations come about from the hundreds of tiny, almost imperceptible steps we take along the way. Yeah. And so many people said, can you create a journal where I can take those small steps? And so this is, that's why it's it's really intentional in terms of how much space there is and how people respond to the, the quotes. And, and in the journal, you even have like a midweek check you have an end of the week. What have we done this week? What are we going to do going into the next week? So that you're using them very intentionally. Yeah. I also, uh, just to talk about the journal more, I really like how you've got different, um, I don't know, I feel like you activate different parts of the brain with the journal. Um, maybe you want to talk a little bit about like, because yeah, it's like write down with the midweek check-in, but then it's like draw something that, yeah. Yeah, because I think that people process their feelings in different ways. And so some people are very much about using words. Some people are about using pictures. Um, you know, some people need the kind of the structure and the freedom. So there's there's enough structure where you do have those midweek check-ins. One of the things mm-hmm. that, I, that I really want to emphasize in the journal is being kind to ourselves. Mm. So when I think we're journaling, sometimes we can be so hard on ourselves. Like we beat ourselves up on the page. Oh, yeah. You know, we criticize ourselves. We talk about why we're not good enough. We talk about all the things we haven't done. And so I always say, you know, when you're talking to yourself, is it kind? Is it true? And is it useful? Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, so many times when I'm like giving talks and I'm on stage and I'll say to the audience, who's the person that you talk to most in the course of your life? Is it your partner? Show of hands, you know, (laughs) lots of hands. Is it your best friend? Is it your sibling? Right. Mm. Um, And 
we, it's it's ourselves. You know, the person that we talk to most is ourselves. And most of the time, what we say to ourselves is not kind, not true, not useful. Yeah. Mm. I'm reminded of of two things. Uh, One is this Eckhart Tolle story he tells real quick. He's at this party with a David Blaine type figure who gets into, uh, the whole crowd is around him, gets into this fish tank and holds his breath for seven minutes as he's sort of looking at the whole crowd, looking at him, right? And the guy who throws the party looks over at Eckhart and says, uh, can you hold your breath for seven minutes like that? He goes, no, but I can hold my thoughts for seven minutes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's great. One last thing to say about hope here. I'm not telling you to minimize optimism or hope. I'm not telling you not to either. Although one might benefit from questioning your factory settings. And what I mean by factory settings is we've been told that hope is nothing but a good thing. You should hope more. You should have more hope. No matter what, there are certain things that are always good for you. But that isn't true. It's just like the swimming pool analogy I used earlier. I'm not saying swimming pools are inherently good or bad. What I'm saying is here is a fact. Quite often, when I hope for something, I have this expectation it often will lead to a future regret. Well, I also Mm -hmm. think that it's hope paired with action. So, you know, people might say, oh, eating lots of fruits and vegetables is really good for you. But then if everything else you eat is junk food, it really doesn't have the benefit, right? Right. So it's what are you pairing the hope with? Sure. Mm. And and is that hope even required for the action would be the next question for you. and, And I think it's a highly individual thing. Maybe you don't even need the hope. In fact... I have one more quote from your book here. The most powerful truths, the one people take the most seriously, are those they come to little by little on their own. Mm. And so I can tell you that hope is a measurement of future regrets, but this truth might not be powerful for you, Miriam, for a year, five years, 10 years, maybe never, but you might come to it on your own and then you might see the truth in that statement. We have a question from Instagram. Debbie wants to know, when it comes to living the life I want, I know I'm holding myself back. I plan to work on it, but what do I really need to do to get out of my own way? Lori, page 38 of the journal. Part of getting to know yourself is to unknow yourself, to let go of the limiting stories you've told yourself about who you are so that you aren't trapped by them, so you can live your life and not the story you've been telling yourself about your life. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting. I think so many people come to therapy and they say, I want to get to know myself better. Mm. And I always say part of getting to know yourself is to unknow yourself because we've been told all these stories about ourselves from either in our families or the culture tells us all these stories about ourselves. And I think that we have to unknow those things that are holding us back, those things that are keeping us stuck. And so then we can figure out what is the accurate story. I actually have a workbook too, that maybe you should talk to someone workbook. And the whole workbook is about, it's a step-by-step guide to rewriting your story and getting that unknowing happening so you can get the knowing happening. Mm, yeah. yeah. Oh man, I had uh, some really good advice given to me one time. Um, it was before we recorded uh, Less Is Now. Um, this was a very different documentary than what minimalism was. It was a straight-to-camera uh, delivering um, a talk and I was having a hard time connecting with the camera. And I'm like, I was talking to us, it was my therapist, and I was talking to him about like, how do I connect with the people on the other side of the camera? And he was like, you're looking at it wrong. He's like, 
get get out of your own way and be yourself. Like if you can do that, you'll be you'll be fine. And that's that's um kind of what I want to tell Debbie here is like, yeah, get out of your get out of your own way in the sense of, yes, yeah, stop using those same narratives to to uh talk you into being this person that you thought you were or that you are and just be genuine. Um, that is going to, that's going to get you pretty far. I know like with less is now, I felt really good about after recording that because I was able to get out of my own way and just kind of be myself. Yeah. And I think there's all these questions about, you know, who are you trying to be mm. as opposed to just being who you are. Right. And, and so many people take a long time to get to that place. And in, in you know, I, I often talk about this idea that I think people think is really morbid, but I think it's really empowering, <laughs> which is that life has a hundred percent mortality rate. Right. Mm. That we all think we all think that like, oh, no, I'm not going to, you know, someday, (laughs) you know, whatever. I don't want to think about that right now. Yeah. (laughs) But but the truth is we all have a limited time here and we don't know how or when we're going to die. And so I really think that it's important. You know, I had this this patient who was young and she was had cancer and, and, and she was so like laser focused on the things that we should all be laser focused on. Mm. It shouldn't take, you know, having a terminal illness for us to realize that we all have a terminal illness. It's called being human and we all die. Yeah. So nobody's going to survive this. Right. So I think that knowing that life has a 100% mortality rate will help you to say, you know, I don't want to be something that I'm not. I don't want to be something for the culture, for my family, for my friends, whatever it is. I just want to live the life that I want to live. And let's do it sooner rather than later because we don't know how much time we have. Yeah. No, I, I I don't know how old I was when I accepted that, hey, none of us make it out of here alive. Yeah. But it is such a, it's scary, but it's also freeing. Because, it is. Because it c- kind of makes you look at like, well, wh- what do I got to lose? Mm. You know? Yeah. I love that. Debbie, you don't have to do anything to get out of your own way. I think that is the common misconception here. What are the six things I can do <laughs> to improve my life, to get out of my own way or, or whatever it might be? Once you understand the benefits, the why, the how begins to take care of itself. I'll give you an example. Just this past week, my crawl space flooded, right? And yes, I can get a guide to figure out how to sump pump and all these other things. But as soon as I knew that the crawl space was flooded, I know my why. I don't want mold growing underneath my house, right? Mm-hmm. The how-to begins to take care of itself. Mm. And so... It's true. You don't, there's nothing you have to do here. This isn't a mechanical process where you literally have to pump out your crawl space, right? You're in your own way. There's nothing to do to get out of your own way other than a deeper understanding. Well, the deeper understanding is so important because it's these patterns that keep us stuck. So how do people get in their own way? They kind of recreate these patterns. Mm. So you see people do this in relationships all the time where they're like, why is it that I always end up with people who are bad for me? Or why is it that I always end up with someone who's angry or someone who has an addiction or somebody who doesn't treat me well, right? And and then they go to like, you know, all whatever people are bad or you know mm-hmm. and it, and it's like no there's something you're doing mm-hmm. and so what we do is you know it's kind of you know that that saying we marry our unfinished business if we don't get out of our own way if we don't figure out what our pattern is we really do marry our unfinished business or we keep going after those people when we're dating mm. and so what is this pattern what are what is this thing that feels so familiar to you that you gravitate toward it every time with outside of your awareness right mm. and until you do the work to kind of heal whatever needs healing you're going to keep getting in your way. You're going to keep repeating the pattern. You're going to keep, your unconscious is going to say, you look 
familiar. Come closer. Yeah, right? right. And then and that person on the surface looks nothing like whoever didn't treat you the way you needed to be treated as a child. But there's something that feels very like home to you. Mm-hmm. Even though home felt miserable to you, it feels like home and you keep looking for home. And when you can get unstuck, right? When you get out of that pattern, when you say, what do I need to heal? Because this other person that I'm seeking is not going to heal me. What do I need to do to heal myself so that I show up as a more whole person and I'm not seeking healing from the other person? I'm going to be attracted to different kinds of people and they're going to show up differently for me. So if she's, I don't know in which way she's stuck, but if there's some pattern that she's going through, you know, there's, there's other patterns that people bring too is like, oh, you know, I, I, I make myself very small or I have these dreams, but I don't go after them because I don't think I'm good enough. Right. You know, whatever the pattern is, that's what she needs to do. That's how she's going to get unstuck. What I'm hearing from you for Debbie is it's not about what you need to do. It's about what you need to undo. It's what you need to understand. Mm -hmm. Yes. We have another question here from YouTube. Mitch says, I've been really struggling with task avoidance due to some mental health issues, but I found your discussion around discipline, boundaries and resistance really helpful. Do you find that overcoming resistance builds up like a muscle where the more resistance you overcome, the easier it becomes to do so? Mm. Let's talk a bit about resistance, right? The In the context of the conversation we were having, is quite often resistance is almost a beacon that points me in the direction in which I want to travel. Yes. It could be something as simple as like, I don't want to go to the gym or and it's a, a, a twinge of resistance or I don't want to get in the ice bath this morning, whatever it is. But as soon as I've done the thing that I had the resistance for doing, I'm always grateful that I did it. And so that's the context that we're talking about with respect to resistance. Yeah, it's kind of like you want to move toward the resistance. Um, People who are avoidant, I always say avoidance is a way of coping without having to cope. So, you know, you you tend to not go toward the very thing that is going to be most important for you to go toward. And I think, too, the reason that we resist is because maybe we're not ready. We haven't gone through the stages. So people think when you want to make a change, you want to do something differently, more healthy in your life, that you just say, okay, I want to make this change. New Year's just happened, right? So it's Mm -hmm. like people make these New Year's resolutions. Well, why do New Year's resolutions often fail? Because there are these stages just to change. Hmm. And so, you know, in maybe you should talk to someone I talk about, there's a, there's a chapter called How Humans Change. And you go through pre-contemplation where you don't even really know that you want to make a change. Then contemplation, you're kind of thinking about it, but you're not really ready. That's where a lot of resistance comes in. Mm-hmm. Then there's preparation where you're like, I'm going to kind of research this a little bit, or I'm going to like start taking some steps that maybe I would need to do if I were going to change. Mm-hmm. Then there's action, which is when you actually make the change. But the important stage of change is maintenance. Mm. And that's how do we maintain the change? And people think that if you try to make a change and then you slip up, that you failed and it's over and forget it. And then people don't even try to continue. And built into maintenance is that you're going to slip back. It's like shoots and ladders. Mm. You know, you're going to slip back. And then it's just how can you be kind to yourself and hold yourself accountable and have a little bit of self-compassion. So people think if I beat myself up, then I'm going to, you know, stay on track. No. Mm. Self-flagellation does not do that. It makes you feel ashamed and it makes you hide. 
So if you can have compassion for yourself and say, okay, I slipped up, what happened? Maybe I was feeling anxious and I slipped back, whatever it was, Um, but I'm just going to get back on track and I'm going to be really kind to myself. Eventually, the new normal becomes so much a part of your daily life that you've actually made the change. Yes. Mm. Oh, man, it makes me think about this... um, this program that my wife and I did with another uh, married couple friend of ours, it was called the 75 Hard Challenge. Oh, I forget. It's Andy somebody, but Sean, you can put it in the uh, podcast. Sean, you can put it in the show notes. Um, the, it's called 75 Hard. Basically, it's two 45-minute workouts a day. Uh, one of them has to be outside. Uh, no alcohol. You have to pick a diet. doesn't matter what diet you pick. It just has to be something that works for you. You got to read 10 pages in a book. Um, you know, no cheat days, nothing like that. Um, it was in the first two weeks, I was like, this is miserable. Like, and the only thing that kept me going was like, I didn't want to let my wife down. I didn't want to let her friends down. So I'm, I'm going to keep doing it. But after those two or three weeks, it became habitual. Yeah. To the point when the 75 days was over, I still continued it. And um, I have like slowly but surely talked my way out of, uh, of continuing it. But we're actually going to start something here again soon because I miss having that, that discipline. So, you know, it doesn't become easier, I would say, it becomes habitual, which makes it a little less difficult. But to say it's easier, that doesn't sound right to me. Well, because you were doing something that wasn't really sustainable. Mm. And mm-hmm. so, right. you know, yeah, I think yeah. when people are making a change, usually it's positive. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it's a, it's something that makes them feel better. Yeah, It's harder at first, but then it makes them feel better. And it also fits into their lives. Yeah, You know, like you're describing something that's that's really intense. Yeah. And it's meant to be a temporary thing. It's, yeah. That's that's kind of how it's intended. Um. But would you say it gets easier? Is that yes. is, is that the right word? Okay. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay. You know, because uh, yeah. I think that that people start to feel better. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a change might be even something like, I'm going to get out of this relationship that doesn't feel right. You know, it's like mm. it's a toxic relationship. Um, and so there's a lot of that like, oh, should I call it 3 a.m.? Should I not call it 3 a.m.? Yeah. Right. And so it's, you know, like maybe you slip up one time or or whatever it is, or yeah. maybe you, you know, you or you looked at their Instagram and you know, you're like, it's bad for you and it's going to put you in a funk for three hours if you look at their Instagram, right? Mm, yeah. So it's like, you know, how do you help yourself move beyond those things? So those changes are actually really positive changes. Yeah, yeah. It's clear to me that what we're talking about here when we're talking about resistance is resistance is sort of a finger pointing at more meaningful experiences. Don't confuse the resistance as though it is something meaningful in and of itself. Right. Resistance can also mean that, uh-oh, there's something there's something, a, 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 some sort of trouble in front of me that I want to avoid. Yeah. That it makes sense to healthfully avoid. Maybe it is a toxic relationship or maybe it's merely a pothole in the road. There's something there that you want to avoid. But the type of resistance that we're talking about here is one that says, hey, this isn't the easiest thing that is in front of me. Mm-hmm. But I know that that experience itself will be meaningful to me. And understanding that type of resistance helps us move in that direction. Well, I think just understanding that change is hard. Mm. So when you're resisting something, it means that you're going to have to make some kind of change in your daily life. And that's really hard because, again, we'd rather be kind of the devil you know. We'd Mm. rather be in the situation (laughs) we're in and thinking about change and not really doing it versus, oh, I'm going to have to do something that is going to require me to go outside of my comfort zone. Right. And into a place of uncertainty. Mm. And we don't do well with uncertainty. No. Ladies and mm. gentlemen, Lori Gottlieb. Yes. yes! 
Yes. We'll, we'll put a link to the journal in. I'll hold it up here if you're watching the YouTube version or the video version, I should say. Um, we'll put a link to this in the show notes as well as her podcast. Where else should we send folks if they want to learn more? Sure. They can um, get my book. Maybe you should talk to someone. They can get the workbook. Maybe you should talk to someone the workbook. They can get the journal. Maybe you should talk to someone the journal. They can listen to the Dear Therapist podcast where we do actual sessions with people and give them advice and they try it out and we hear what happens. Um, and they can go to, they can find me on socials and they can go to my website, which is lauriegottlieb.com. Mm. Well, Lori, thank you so much for joining us yes, today. It's been a awesome. meaningful conversation. Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. That's right. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, also Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Minimalist. Now, during the lightning round, we each have 60 seconds to answer your questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims and the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast so that you can copy and share our pithy answers if you like. Ryan, let's start with you. We got a question from ZZZ Test. Because I keep to myself, others misinterpret that as me being mysterious and want to pry. How do I keep other people out of my business? All right, Professor Sean, give me 60 seconds. Here is my pithy answer. Fulfilling other people's expectations is not fulfilling. So here's the thing. I have expectations of uh, Josh as a business partner. I've got expectations as Malabama, as, 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 as one of our employees. I've got expectations of my wife. I've got expectations of my parents. But what I realize is that the more expectations I have for others, the less they get met. And I, I'm flipping that uh, for you, ZZZ test. Um, other people's expectations of you doesn't mean that you have to live up to them. You can respect them. You can try to understand them. You can, uh, you know, be loving and kind without living up to everyone else's expectations because living up to everyone else's expectations is a great recipe for disaster. Yeah. I would just echo what you're saying there. It's a great way to be unsatisfied, to be unfulfilled by trying to fulfill everyone else. Yes. What a great point. Give me 60 seconds, Sean. So, Here's something pithy for you. It's an oldie but a goodie. You can't change the people around you, but you can change the people around you. <laughs> so no one in my life pries into my business, triple Z. No one in my life is constantly trying to figure out what's going on with me personally because I wouldn't tolerate that kind of behavior. I can't change the people if Ryan all of a sudden wanted to be a nosy Nancy and was constantly asking me, hey, what's going on with this? What's going on with this? And gossiping, the key wouldn't be to make him gossip less. It would be to surround myself with people who don't treat me that way. Mm. And I think that is the key here for Triple Z. It's about letting go of needing the friendships you have right now and moving toward the more empowering relationships that aren't going to pry into your business. So I saw a meme the other day. It was, uh, well, it was a picture of a, um, like a sandwich board sign mm -hmm. on, I think it was on the outside of a bar or a restaurant. It, I swear to God, I think I sent you a picture of it. It said, um, you can't change the people around you, but you can change the people around you. And then it, 
just put unknown. <laughs> I'm like, we know exactly who said that. <laughs> See, I've aspired my whole life to be unknown. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is perfect. Yeah. Oh, it's so funny. I'm like, I know exactly who said that. Come on. It's my new moniker. If you Google it, it'll, it comes up pretty easily. Anyway. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Do these people not have Google? I guess not. It's all good. Uh, right here, right now. By the way, we'll check in with the live stream here in a second. But first, real quick for right here, right now. Here's one thing going on in the life of the minimalists. We are beginning to speak. Ryan and I will go out to universities, to corporations, to conferences, one a month generally. We'll go out and we'll talk to your organization. If you'd like to hire the minimalist to speak, you can reach out to our agent. You can find, actually our speaking demo is over there as well, as well at theminimalists.com slash speaking. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. You can reach out to us. We'd be happy to have you hire us to come out and speak to your conference, your organization, your group, theminimalists.com slash speaking. For more details, Malabama, let's check in with the Patreon live stream. What do you got for us? We have a question here from Britt. She says, I am constantly cleaning up behind my two-year-old and trying to keep the home tidy. We live very minimally, but I feel like my OCD is getting in the way of me being present as a parent. Any tips on finding a balance? I don't think you want to find balance. It's weird because we don't ever want to find balance in any other area of our life, really, right? We're not looking for balance. We're looking for contentment because you can balance all of the wrong things, the things that are inappropriate for your life, and yes, you could have a bunch of things that are in balance, but not achieve what you're actually trying to achieve. What mm. you're trying to achieve here is, Britt, you want to be present with your two-year-old, right? And yet you're clinging to the idea of the way things should be when a two-year-old isn't present. And I know this from firsthand experience. Ella, when she was two, I think she was trying out for the Taliban. Because <laughs> <laughs> she terrorized our house. She was too much of a terror for them, actually. <laughs> yes, they rejected yeah. her. <laughs> They're like, she's a little over the top. Yeah. <laughs> and so what I realized, Britt, is I had to not forcibly let go because letting go is not something you do. I had to loosen my grip. Hey, yes, I might prefer things to be this way. But what is the worst thing that could happen if it's not this way? I was on our back patio yesterday and there were several little toys strewn across the, the patio. And yes, my OCD was like, hey, it shouldn't be this way. Mm. But what's the worst thing that could happen? I might step on one. Mm -hmm. But even then, I see them, so I'm not going to step on one. Mm -hmm. And so I recognize that my expectation I had the hope that I had, oh, I hope things are going to be this way, actually got in the way of what? Me being present with my daughter. And as soon as I let go of that hope or that expectation and just accepted reality for what it was, hmm. and I can't prescribe that to you. I can't say just accept things for how they are. Good luck with that. Mm -hmm. But if you see things for how they are, you'll recognize the way you want the world to be is different from the way the world is. And that is why you're experiencing the discontent. There's no other reason. Mm. Britt, I totally understand the essence of your question here. Like, when do you just give up on cleaning up after your two-year-old and and uh, uh, kind of let things be the way that they are? And Josh is right. Like, there's no magic bullet answer here to let you, uh, to make you let go of those expectations that you have. But what I'll say is this, as a two-year-old, they're messy. 
They're really, really messy. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you've got to clean up after them. Um, the answer isn't to just stop cleaning up after them. Mm -hmm. uh, but but you know what I'll say is it will get easier as time goes on. And then you could show them how to help you, show them how to uh, uh, raise the standards for themselves. But yeah, this is a temporary time. It's going to get better for you, Britt. Yes, indeed. We'll check back in with the live stream here in a little bit. But first, Malaban, what do you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, guys. This is Caroline calling in from Gaithersburg, Maryland. Here are a few tips for all the folks who are trying to be minimal in their makeup consumption and usage. For example, I have a dark brown shade of eyeshadow that I use as eyeshadow, eyeliner, and an eyebrow filler. It doesn't smudge, it's long-lasting, and no one notices that my eye or brow liners are actually eyeshadow. You can also use lipstick for your lips and cheeks. I smudge a small line across my cheeks and rub it in for blush. As for my skincare routine, I have been struggling with acne for over 10 years. After spending literally thousands of dollars on Forza face wash products, I decided enough was enough. I went to my kitchen, my kitchen for some face care solutions. I now wash my face with a warm water and sea salt solution which has cleared my acne up tremendously. I also use a honey or aloe vera plant mask for 15 minutes every week to hydrate my skin. Just to make sure this is aloe vera directly from a plant, not the gel you use when you have sunburn, totally different, and the latter is filled with a lot of, lots of toxins and chemicals depending on where you get it, so please don't put that on your face. Um, Lastly, when I do break out, I put one drop of tea tree essential oils onto a wet reusable cotton ball and rub it on the acne spot. It serves as a DIY uh, acne treatment serum that is giving me great results. So I hope this helps and shows you examples of how minimal makeup and skincare routines are possible and effective. Hi, my name is Lisa Benson, and I'm calling from Waltham, Mass. I've been thinking a lot about souvenirs when you go on a trip. Lately, or recently, our 10-year-old niece came up to visit us, and she bought something small for every family member to show that she was thinking of them when she was visiting and traveling. Um, but I'm thinking of a different way that you could show that to a friend or family member without having to buy them something, which is uh, they give you something small to take with you. Maybe it's a drawing or a treasured object or whatever, and uh, you take a picture of that, that object at uh, some landmark or special place or moment, and you share that photo with them. So it's like a piece of them was with you on the trip. Welcome back to the Minimalist Private Podcast. Joshua Fields Milburn here with Ryan Nicodemus. TK Coleman is somewhere in Detroit right now. <laughs> we, should, we could just CGI him in. <laughs> I told him I was going to get a cardboard cutout of him. <laughs> But always in street clothes like Anthony Davis or something. Oh, yeah. Because he's not playing today. Right. But uh, he'll be back uh, next week for all of you. Uh, let's start with some... We got a bunch of Simple Living segments to talk to you about, but I want to start with more about less. Yeah. Got an article here. We were going to read it last week as part of the Clutter Core episode. You want to go back and listen to that. By the way, this podcast is serialized, so you have to listen to every episode in sequential <laughs> order. Otherwise, you're going to have no idea what's going That's on. That's right. You, there's there's going to be plot holes everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> we, the Clutter Core episode we did last week was one of my favorite episodes we've ever done because I thought it exposed something and allowed the three of us, me and Ryan and TK, 
to talk about and maybe even disagree in a way that we found common ground mm. amid our Venn diagrams. This is an article from the New York Times. It's a guest essay called Clutter is Good for You. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. Let's see if we agree with Rob Walker on this. All right. Several years before she died, my mother began sending me things, ostensibly significant objects. These included expected items like jewelry and photographs and also puzzling ones. For example, one afternoon I opened a package containing a carefully wrapped eight-inch tall ceramic leprechaun that I don't recall ever having seen. My family has no connection to Ireland. Not long after, she announced that she wanted to send along her collection of bird figurines, in which I had never expressed any special interest. <laughs> Sound familiar, listeners? <laughs> okay. Clearly, this was no longer about handing down heirlooms. It was about getting rid of objects. Mm. Basically, a form of decluttering. I had to put a stop to it. And not just because these objects didn't actually mean anything to me. Much more important, they did mean something to her. In fact, what I most enjoyed about her accumulation of bird figurines and ceramics and sand dollars from Texas beaches was her enjoyment of these things. Her unselfconscious confidence about what she liked was one of her most admirable traits. So I persuaded her not to only keep her figurines, but also to let herself continue to appreciate their presence. Because ultimately, my mother's urge to purge struck me as illuminating something misguided about our general relationship to material culture. In short, what we often dismiss as, quote, clutter, all those non-essential, often oddball objects that a third-party observer might write off as needless junk, can actually be good for us. The villainization of clutter has perhaps been most insistently pushed by the tidying up guru, Marie Kondo. Its latest iteration pairs a yearning to neaten up pandemic cocoons crowded with stuff thanks to a couple of years of online shopping as a monotony-fighting tactic with a trendy take on minimalism that equates the blank space aesthetic with mindful sophistication. But the underlying vibe is a suspiciously familiar one. Yet again, minimalist scolds insist that we should repent of our materialist ways. Things they're forever lecturing just aren't that important. Hmm. This is a bit of a straw man argument, it seems to me, Ryan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I, think, uh, I think articles like this are usually a straw man argument. And people are allowed to present their opinions and arguments however they want. I mean, I, I, I think it's a shame that they would say that, uh, you know, minimalists are asking people to repent of their things. Right. And, and, and we're prescribing getting rid of your things yeah. to make you happy as though it is a means to an end. Yes. It's the opposite. It is clearing the things that are not important. And, I think where he was absolutely right in this article is those bird finger figurines are not important to him. Right. So he shouldn't be the bearer of the figurines. But I do agree. I wouldn't convince my mom to not get rid of no. them. Or make her feel bad. Right. Or love her any less if she didn't get rid of them. 
But you can bring up to her that, hey, you get immense joy from these things. You can simply ask the question, why let go of something that you get immense joy from? Now, she might say, well, I'm going to let go of them because I'm making space for something I get even more joy from. Okay, that's wonderful. Mm. But asking the question as opposed to you should keep them or you should get rid of them, that's not what minimalism is about when we're talking about minimalism. When we talk about minimalism, minimalism is the thing that gets us past the things so we can make room for life's most important things. And if those things are bird figurines or sand dollars from a Texas beach, then so be it. If they amplify your life, enhance your life, who am I to tell you to get rid of it? No way. In fact, I'm going to say, if it enhances your life, Hold on to it until it doesn't anymore. However, hold on to it loosely. Be willing to let go of it because if you're willing to let go, that means you're holding on to it for the reasons that you want to hold on to it. You're actually experiencing something with that thing as opposed to it getting in the way because it's only clutter if it gets in the way. Mm. Man, I really, because I think our audience knows this, but this, this, writer, and maybe they're intentionally choosing a, a straw man argument to present here to to serve the story. But, you know, no matter who you are or how much stuff you have, like Josh and I will always be loving. We will always be respectful. Mm. Um, we will never look at anyone or judge anyone. Uh, we'll never look at anyone differently because they've got in our eyes, too much stuff. Because in their eyes, it may not be too much stuff. Maybe in their eyes, it is too much stuff. But if any, if anything, like Josh and I will relate, uh, we wouldn't just sit there and be like, yeah, yeah, you should feel bad. You got all that stuff. I mean, right. we, that, that's not, that's just not us, man. Let me return to the text here. Maybe it's Marie Kondo, though. <laughs> <laughs> Things they are forever lecturing just aren't that important. important. It seems hard to disagree. Yet, it's also hard to square that pronouncement with, to pick a recent example, the frenzy of attention around the auction of Joan Didion's personal effects, which in addition to books and artworks included in a box of loose buttons, a bunch of seashells and pebbles, a, quote, miscellaneous group of eyewear, and other items that one observer bluntly described as junk, and that even the auction house called ephemera, The highbrow musing around this focus almost exclusively on the high, focused exclusively on the high prices fetched. $10,000 for the collection of specs, $27,000 for a single pair of sunglasses, Mm. or, or the possible motives of those who paid them. But what might reflect, what we might reflect on instead is the fact that she kept this stuff. In the first place, nobody demanded to know why Didion didn't declutter. Whether, say, all those paperweights, there are at least five, truly, quote, sparked joy. Let me say this. Yes, nobody demanded to know why Didion didn't declutter. I don't demand to know why anyone doesn't declutter. Right. Another simple straw man argument against minimalism. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing about Joan Didion, and this is the danger of a story like this. If you're listening to this, you're probably not Joan Didion, and you probably aren't respected uh, by collectors the same way Joan Didion was. Mm -hmm. And it's unlikely that when you pass, there's going to be hordes of people, scores of people paying tens of thousands of dollars for your junk. Because let's face it, if this wasn't Joan Didion and it was just Joan Smith, 
these same exact objects wouldn't have, well, they wouldn't have brought the same value to the auction house that was selling them, right? The fact that their memorabilia has to do a lot with the things that Joan Didion created, the books that she wrote, that's why people are so fascinated in Mm. this ephemera. And that's what it is. It is a bunch of ephemera. It is a pair of sunglasses. It's $27,000, but it's only $27,000 because Joan Didion owned it. If Joan Smith owned it, it's unlikely we would even get $27 for those same sunglasses. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, it's it, again, it's just unfortunate that like people put up the straw man argument because minimalism is it's <clears throat> it's a great tool for people to use to like gain control over their lives and their surroundings. Mm-hmm. And I know for me, as stressed out as I was and the and the the tornado of of a chaotic life that I was caught in, I mean, minimalism really helped me sort that out. And I think it's unfortunate that we have to go right towards the the um, stuff part of it. Or actually, that's not true. Um, we go towards the stuff part, uh, and the stuff is the initial bite at the apple. So it's not unfortunate that they go to the stuff part. It's unfortunate that it stops. They stop there. They stop at the stuff point. I mean, I remember, um, uh, oh, I think it was Mr. Money Mustache wrote an article on like, um, why minimalism doesn't work for poor people. Mm. And people were like begging us to rebuttal him. And I'm reading the article and it came from a very straw man argument of like, well, minimalism is getting rid of your stuff. And if you're poor, you don't have a lot of stuff to begin with. So um, in fact, if you're poor and you do have stuff, you need to hold on to it even more mm. um, because you can't afford to replace things if you need to replace it. And it was it was this straw man argument. Yeah. And the only thing, that t- there's nothing to rebut when someone defines minimalism a certain way and then beats it down. And you can look at examples from the mystics of many centuries past. And many if you look at just your average Buddhist monk who owns essentially nothing, right? And has taken a vow of poverty even, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's not that they are living a miserable life because they don't have stuff. There are plenty of counterexamples even then that even if you did take the straw man argument as a coherent argument, Mm -hmm. there are plenty of counterexamples that discredit even the straw man argument. Yeah. Let me, I'm going to go to the last page of this article. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's a relatively long one here, but it's worth reading. I'll read the last two paragraphs here from Rob Walker. I'm sure you can think of a personal example, an object that's gone missing from your life that you'd love to have back or at least see again. No, I can't. I really, I'm trying to, because I'm open to that. Intellectually, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to think of something where I'm like, oh, what, what have I gotten rid of that I really wish I still had? Well, in a moment, I'm going to talk about a time where I had to reinstitute the just for win rule. Mm-hmm. So there was something I got rid of a few years ago that I had to repurchase recently. Mm-hmm. And I did miss it from a utilitarian standpoint. We'll we'll talk about that in a moment. But he goes on to say, but I wonder, would you have known when this thing went AWOL that you'd miss it? If my mother had shipped her bird figuring collection off to me, would she have glanced wistfully at the empty spots on the shelves where they were displayed? I can only speculate. But the lesson I've taken is this. Be careful what you purge. Today's decluttering victim is tomorrow's lost object, and lost objects are lost forever. That's why I'm keeping my embarrassing 
ceramic leprechaun. I'm learning to appreciate it. It holds a connection for me to my mother and to all her best intentions and instincts Mm. that I never want to lose. Mm. So trying to tug at the heartstrings here. Well, I do agree with the sentiment of be careful what you purge. Absolutely. That's a a great piece of advice. Yes, but also understanding that if you purge literally everything, in our book, Love People Use Things, the story of Jason and Jennifer Kirkendall, Mm -hmm. where they, I I won't give you a spoiler here, but they essentially lose everything. Mm -hmm. And literally lose everything except their kids and uh, two of their three pets. And what I'll tell you is that that losing of everything was also meaningful to them. And so you never know. I'm not encouraging you to purge everything, but I'm saying that you can purge everything and you'll still be okay because you are not in those objects. Your memories Mm -hmm. are not in those objects. Your family, not in those objects. The sentiment is not even in the sentimental object. Yeah. Your memories are in you. They're not in your things. You can let go of the things without letting go of your memories. You can let go of the things without letting go of your family. You can let go of the things without letting go of your life. Our things are not us. They're not our life. And it's okay to let go. But guess what? It's also okay to hold on. You'll find the most joy, though, if you hold on loosely. Mm, Amen. Yeah, it's like I've got a couple sentimental things. Um, I've talked, you know, a thousand times about that Stein that my my Oma gave me from Germany. Mm. Um, My mom uh, gave me a vase one time. And I display those things in my home. Mm -hmm. And they're beautiful. And I look at them and... Um, I don't know, every time I look at the sign or every time I look at that vase, I think about mom, I think about my Oma. Mm-hmm. But I also think about them a lot when I'm not looking at those things. Yeah. And ultimately, if I showed up and, you know, God forbid, they spontaneously combusted and they were out of my life, um, I don't think I would even mourn. Like I wouldn't even have to go through a mourning process of it. I'd be like, oh, those are gone. But that is because I do hang on to those things very loosely. I mean, I think the best superpower that minimalism has given me is the ability to walk away from anything. Yes, my things, but also relationships and anything else in my life that I start to get attached to, um, I hold loosely onto it because I am prepared to walk away if I need to. Got some talk aboutables for you, Ryan. Actually, Alabama, I didn't get this printed out. I forgot to ask you to print it out. So we'll save this for next week. How to go clothes shopping. A little teaser for you. We'll talk about that next week. But I've got something that I'm calling the duplicates rule. Here's hmm. what the duplicates rule is. And I think it's especially helpful given the article that we just read about when clutter can be good for you. Mm-hmm. Here's when clutter can be bad for you, meaning get in the way. Not morally bad, but clutter can get in the way. In fact, by definition, that's what clutter does. I call this the duplicates rule. It's really the easiest of all the decluttering rules that we have. By the way, when we talk about rules, they're never rules. They're always boundaries that you can adjust for your own taste. But here's how the duplicates rule works. Just because you use that fourth skillet doesn't mean you should keep it. Hmm. Here's what I mean by that. If you have four skillets and you use all four of them and you want to keep them, great. But if they're taking up space, if you have duplicates that are simply getting in the way, it's also okay to let it go. 
What do I mean by this? So just because you use something occasionally doesn't mean that you should hold on to it in perpetuity. Mm. There are a few reasons for this. One is by letting go of it. You may actually find someone else who will get more value from that thing, which could be helpful to them. That's not the reason to let go of something because you could let go of everything at that point. But also, you might recognize that you enjoy cooking more when you don't have four skillets and instead you're using just one or two. And you can even do a packing party for a period of time. Okay, I get that I use this skillet and it doesn't fall within my 90-90 rule, the seasonality rule. I've used it within the last 90 days, but let me set it aside for a little bit. See if I can get by without it for a period of three weeks, four weeks. What happens if I go without? And if you go without and you see a marked improvement in your everyday activities, and it could be a duplicate shirt, it could be kitchenware, spatulas, skillets, whatever it might be, then I think it's a sign that it's worth considering letting go. Yeah. No, I I like what you're pointing out here because it's not, you're not saying this thing about the duplicate skillet just to give people leverage to, uh, uh, or give them an excuse to let go of something. Mm -hmm. It's really about, is your life better without it? Right. And that's the experiment that you're talking about. And you know what? You may go without that fourth skillet. And after two weeks, you're like, oh no, like I, it's kind of a pain in the butt because I like to cook this one dish and I got to get four skillets going at once or, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a clear sign that, okay, maybe you should hold on to that. But yeah, go ahead, Josh. And that pain in the butt is useful, right? Because mm. it tells you like, oh yeah, I've added a little friction here. Right. Now it could be that your life is better with a little bit more friction as well. Because if you don't have any friction, you lose all traction whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I learned that when Bex and I moved into the, the same main house together, we had all of these accoutrements that sort of doubled up. And it's easy to make an excuse. Oh, yeah, I can think of a time where I might need this. And then it be, it's not really a just-in-case item because I know that I'll use it occasionally. But that use is so infrequent that these things end up just getting in my way anyway. Yeah. And so I have this accidental clutter in a way mm. because yes, it's a little useful to me, but my life is actually a little bit less chaotic without it. Yeah, I mean, if you if you go without it and uh, you can still go on living life without having any obstacles because you got rid of that thing, then yeah, it's a clear sign that maybe it's okay to let that thing go. Yeah, and may, maybe it'll be better if I do let it go. Yeah, That subtraction is going to bring some peace to my life. All right, Ryan, I want to review with you the just for win rule. So we have three rules it. in our minimalist rule book. You can download it for free, theminimalists.com slash rule book. There's 16 rules in there. They're really boundaries. They're not actual rules. We just call them rules to trick you into... Uh, Simplifying your life. Just kidding. But (laughs) three of the rules, they really pair together nicely. The first one is the just in case rule. We also call it the 2020 rule. Anything you're holding on to just in case, you can let it go because you can replace it for less than $20 in less than 20 minutes from wherever you are. Mm -hmm. And then there is the emergency items rule, which is a subset of just in case items. Emergency items are just in case items that you don't want to let go of 
but you hope you never have to use them. Let me tell you about my most frustrating uh, just for emergencies uh-huh. item. Yes. Are the snow chains. Drives, like, I only, I have to use them only once every other year. Mm-hmm. I don't have to use them a lot, but like, I do need to use them. And when I have them, I'm so happy that I have them. But until then, they they take up room and it really is kind of frustrating. Yes. And so that brings me to the third rule, which is the just for win rule. And usually I, I apply this rule to consumables, right? I don't buy my toilet paper one square at a time or my toothpaste one nurdle at a time. Yes, Alabama, it's called a nurdle. Nurdle.com. <laughs> and so I buy a whole tube of toothpaste or maybe even multiple tubes of toothpaste or a case of toilet paper, right? Mm. Just for when I might use it. It's not a just-in-case item. It's a just-for-win item. Mm. Although a few years ago, well, I guess it's been six or seven years now since we moved from Montana to California, Ryan. We moved to sunny Southern California. The first thing (laughs) I did is said, I don't need this rain jacket anymore. And you know me, I keep all my, I have so many jackets. Yeah. My wife calls me a jacket slut. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have like six jackets as a minimalist. It's like the one thing, but I, they fit within my 90, 90 rule. But the one thing I got rid of, because I'm like, we're in sunny Southern California. It never rains in Southern California. Wrong. <laughs> it does rain. And so I got rid of my rain jacket. Part of it was symbolic. I'm done with Montana. Let me get away from the rain. I'm not going to need this rain jacket. Mm-hmm. And then over the last few weeks, we have had record setting more rain in than any other time in our lifetime in Southern Mm. California. My crawl space has flooded several times. I've had to sump pump things out. It's been a disaster. And I also don't have a rain jacket. (laughs) 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 So this is one of those things where it's like, it was appropriate for me to let go of it for a period of time because I got by fine without it for a while. But then I realized, you know what? I do need a rain jacket as a just for win item. And it may be, once or twice a year that I really need it for heavy rains when I'm going out to fix something in the yard or whatever. But it makes sense to have this for a period of time, even if it doesn't fit within my seasonality rule, even if it's not a just-in-case item, it is a just-for-win item because I know even in Southern California, I'm going to need that rain jacket every once in a while. Yeah, eventually. Well, we don't have TK's tweet of the week this week because TK is not here, but we'll get back to that next week. What we do have is an obsolete object. Now, Ryan, I stumbled across this on... By the way, you can send us your obsolete objects, your impulse purchases, your sucky ads, podcast at minimalists.com. Looking forward to what you have. I saw this, and this is... You could put it under impulse purchase. You could put it under obsolete object. I think it is both... But it is so tricky. This is why marketing is so enticing, Ryan. Mm-hmm. I'm going to show you this video that we have. And when I first saw this on Instagram, it showed up in my algorithm somewhere. It is a storage solution for people with OCD like me. Oh, wow. Okay. And actually, you know what? Let's take a look at the video. If you're watching the video version of the podcast, you will see it. Otherwise, we'll come back and explain it here in a moment. Let's take a look at the video, Ryan. Okay. All right, so we're playing this without sound. It's a couple in their garage, and they are they have all these totes that look really nice, and they're storing the totes on the ceiling of their garage, and it's nice and organized. And so, Ryan, as soon as I saw this, you can imagine what I thought. How do I get this immediately? Yeah, that looks um, 
it is very pleasing to my OCD. I don't even have OCD. But and you see it and it's like, oh, this is a solution. Wait a minute. This is a solution to a problem I don't have. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because if I need this, what the heck am I going to put in these bins? I don't have anything to put in these bins. Mm. So I would also have to acquire things to store in the bins. I'd have to acquire a garage because I don't have a garage either mm-hmm. uh, that I would store these things in. But it made me think like, oh yeah, I was addicted to organizing. Mm. And being addicted to organizing is a type of hoarding. Mm. Now my space now, Ryan, whenever you come to my house, it looks organized. But the easiest way to organize your stuff is to get rid of most of it. <laughs> yeah. That way I don't have to put it in bins. In fact, if let's say when I bought the house, these whatever it was, 16 bins were installed here in my ceiling. Mm-hmm. I would have to look at it every day and say, what the heck am I supposed to put in those? Yeah. Now, maybe one or two of them I could put a blanket or something in. But even then, it would be superfluous for me. I would rather have the open space than to store things in my garage. Because let's face it, let's say I have all 16 of those, Ryan, or you have all 16 of those. How convenient is it if I actually need to get something from the fourth one back? Yeah, you have to take them all down. And then I have to sort through it. Oh, you know what? It's not actually in that tub. It's in the tub next to it. It's the next row of storage bins. Yeah. That was my favorite thing when you sent this to me. The top comment at the time said, if I put those up there, I'll never open them ever again. Yes. And yeah. that's what that's what storage lockers count on, right? Yes. Yeah. And so instead of having a storage locker, I get this is we'll save you some money on the long run. You know how else to save that money is by simply getting rid of the excess things so you don't need to store them. Yeah, it is a very unique solution. It is a, it is like enticing. Mm. It makes me think like, oh, I could totally use that. Yeah, yeah, I get it. And that's why when we do this impulse purchase segment or the obsolete objects, to me it's obsolete because storage is obsolete for me personally now. Mm-hmm. But it's also an impulse purchase because I saw this on TikTok or Instagram, wherever it was. And I see it and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I think I need, wait, why do I need that? And that's the problem with impulse purchases. We never stop to ask ourselves, why do I actually need that? Why do I want that? Mm. And I will do this all the time, even with a a jacket, for example, or with anything that I feel the, the tug of consumerism. I'm trying to fill some sort of void that is going on inside of me Mm. with external things to complete me. And of course, I'm already complete without the storage totes on on my ceiling. In fact, I would say those things are just going to get in the way for me. Yeah, Got a sucky ad. So I was at a coffee shop a few weeks ago, Ryan. This is our sucky ad segment. And uh, they were playing Spotify overhead, but it was Spotify that had advertisements. <laughs> okay. So they weren't paying for Spotify premium, I guess. Okay, yeah. And the ad that I heard, which by the way, you can send your sucky ads to us, podcast at theminimalists.com. I haven't not been able to find the ad again, but I wrote down verbatim what the ad said. Waking up to the news each day can be stressful. That's why you need the New York Times. Because for some reason, they're not as stressful. (laughs) Let us stress you out instead of (laughs) the Washington Post. Oh, my goodness. We'd like to be your primary stressor. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It's like, um, Ryan, 
I love you, and that's why I want to be your primary source of stress. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, what a that's terrible wild. ad. We're letting you know that we stress you out. Now, I, I assume the the implication of this is like, we're the one news source that won't stress you out. Right. That's, but I don't know if you've ever read the New York Times. It yeah. stresses me out. Yeah. There's no... <laughs> There's no news outlet that doesn't stress me out. They're, 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 every news outlet is trying to stress you out about something. That is, that is their goal because that's what aggregates eyeballs. You know, what's funny is I subscribe to one news outlet and one news outlet only. It's the Dayton Business Journal. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it is, it's so fact-based. It's mm. that there is no, because they're not trying to get clicks. It's subscription-based. Like you have to pay. So it's not a, about getting more people to aggregate the eyeballs onto the the product. Mm. And so it will literally be $1.4 million grant awarded to Wright Patterson Air Force Base. And it's it's just it's literally just the facts with no spin whatsoever. And it's really dry and boring. Yeah. Because they're not trying to get clicks. But as soon as they are trying to get clicks to appease advertisers then of course they're going to need some sort of slant, some sort of spin, some sort of way to entice you to want more, more, yeah. more. How do we do that? Fear porn. We yeah. need you to be afraid so that you pay more attention to us. Yeah. Mm. I don't know why, but this, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Um, I don't know why, but this saying is in my head, one man's stress is another man's news. <laughs> <laughs> Man, it makes me think though, Ryan, maybe the word stress and news are somewhat synonymous. Like, and or the Venn diagram between the two seems to have this giant overlap. Yeah. You are stressing me out, news. Um, and yet we think of it as being virtuous, right? Mm -hmm. I am well informed. I'm stressed out as hell, but at least I'm well informed. Yeah. Well, how good is that doing? if being well-informed makes me miserable most of the time. Mm. And even worse, much of the news infantilizes us because we know there's nothing we can do about the war in Sudan or Ukraine or anywhere else. And it's not that those things are unimportant. I'm not saying that they're unimportant, but we tend to focus on so many things that we can't control. I'm so focused on the things I can't control, worrying about the things I can't control, that I don't make any time for the things that I can control, the mm. things in my own life that I can better understand, that I can change, that I have influence over. I have no influence over the war in whatever country a war is going on right now. I think there are 23 wars happening currently. Mm. And it's possible for me to stress myself out about every single one of those wars. No question about that. But how useful is that? How useful is it to worry about something I have no control over and can't possibly have control over? Yeah. And even worse, with this New York Times ad, I'm paying them to stress me out. Mm. You can have my $8 a week or whatever it is so that you can stress me out more. Here you go, news outlet. Here's some money. Give me some stress in return. Mm. Yeah, it's... Weird when you say it like that. Well, Ryan, let's move on to our Photo Friday home tour. A little segment we do each week. This is the 24th installment. We're going outside the home for a bit. Have you seen the sign in Ojai? So 
Bex and I moved to Ojai. All we have is now. Last year. Yeah. This is a street sign in front of uh, Beto's Chocolates and Art Gallery, because mm-hmm. yes, there is a art gallery that is also a chocolate store. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Downtown <laughs> Ojai. Danny Unknown took this beautiful picture here of me and Bex. We were downtown doing some photos for Bex's podcast, which is called How to Love, which you can listen wherever you listen to podcasts. We're 50 episodes deep into that thing now. But we saw the sign... And said, oh, it's perfect. A per- what a great reminder. Because whenever you see traffic signs, talk about stress. There's always, especially in LA, it's like you have to read seven different signs to figure out whether you can park here. Mm-hmm. It's like no parking on Tuesdays between 6 p.m. and 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. And there's street sweeping on Thursday afternoons from 2 to 9. And it gets confusing. By the time you get to, I just put my a ticket on my car <laughs> and then get out of the car. I give myself a ticket. I saw a YouTuber do that. Oh, yeah. Were they? Yeah, because basically the idea was to give themselves a ticket. So when a parking uh, parking meter maid oh my gosh. sees it, they ignore the, they're like, oh, they already got a ticket. I don't think that works. I, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I mean, I think it worked for that one video, but um, right. I don't. I take I th- that risk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but think of a, I can't, I've never seen a more empowering sign yeah. in front of a parking space. Mm. You park there and it says, all we have is now. And that's sort of the vibe of, of Ojai, where we moved last year. It's, um, it's this town, it, it's a lot like Missoula in many respects, where you have people who are much more focused on the present, right? Mm. And that's really what this is. It's a street sign, but it's not saying, hey, don't park here. It's a little kind reminder. All we have is now. And there's another sign right next to it. Danny, I don't know if you remember verbatim what it said, but it's a, another parking space that basically just says, uh, pause and feel what it's like to be alive in this moment. Mm. As a street sign. Yeah, that's wild. Is that So are there multiple signs like that? Just two. Okay. Just, just those two. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. Right, in, right in front of this art gallery slash chocolate shop. Beto's Chocolates. <laughs> Beto was an artist who uh, came out of Ojai. Before we get to our added value segment, Ryan, let's check in with the Patreon live stream. Alabama, what do you got for us? We have a question here from Yaman. How do I accept apologies and start to forgive? I've found myself not caring for apologies much and not fully implementing the concept of forgiveness because I rationalize it as the apology or my forgiveness doesn't change the reality of what happened. Any insight you can offer to better my thinking about it? When you apologize, it actually does change the reality of what happened. It doesn't Mm. go back to the past and change the past, but it affects the way that the past affects you now. So in a way, you're not changing the past, you're changing the present, which will soon be the past. And so you are changing your past, but it's just the past from the future. And so apologizing is something that I've learned to do. And it was so difficult for me. I'm really good at apologizing now because I don't hold on to my self-righteousness anymore. It Mm. creeps up all the time. It's easy for me to be smug or self-righteous or think that I am right. But there's this great saying, you can either be right or you can be in love, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, let's say I'm right and I'm proving to you that I'm right, but it's making you miserable and it's straining our relationship, but I was correct about this fact. So what? So yeah. what if I'm correct? Wikipedia is often correct, but it doesn't improve my relationship with someone else. Yeah. And so, yes, 
apologizing was a way for me to let go of the self-righteousness because it forces you to, if you're actually apologizing, I am sorry, I actually am sorry. Mm. It's asking for forgiveness, right? But you don't need the forgiveness in order to apologize. I'm sorry is simply that. I'm sorry is a complete sentence. You can say, I'm sorry. I didn't know you would be offended by that. I didn't know that that my decision was going to cause this turmoil in your life. I didn't intend to do that. Or you know what? I did intend to do that. I said something and I meant to hurt your feelings at the time. Mm. And that was really messed up. And I'm really sorry. And that type of apologizing might get you forgiving, but it allows you to set down the self-righteousness. I love that. I love that. So they're having trouble accepting apologies. And I love what Lori said earlier, you don't have to accept an apology. There's nothing written in the fabric of the universe that says a human being must accept an apology when it is given to them. Um, What I will say is that um, when I have, you know, someone apologize to me over a wrongdoing, it does give me permission to um, mend that relationship in the sense that it gives me an expectation of like, oh, like this isn't hopefully going to happen again. Mm. And that is to me what, um, yeah, what an apology does. It, it, it basically, yes, someone is admitting their guilt, they're admitting their sorrow, but it's also that person saying, hey, I want to move forward with our relationship and I'd really like to put this past behind us. I realize what I did to you. Let's move forward. But There's nothing that says you absolutely have to accept an apology. Yeah, and you don't have to forgive someone either. I have found for me personally, forgiving is not the same thing as letting go. You can let go without forgiving. You can let go and forgive as well. Yeah. They often will run in tandem with one another. Mm -hmm. And forgiving can be a way to let go. Apologizing can be a way to let go. Timing is a big component to that, right? If I'm wronged in in some way, someone has done something awful to me, I'm probably not going to forgive them this afternoon, Mm -hmm. but I can. I don't have to keep holding on to it because the question I often ask myself with respect to apologizing or forgiving is how long do I want to hold on to this? Yeah. How long do I want to hold on to this grief, this sadness? It goes back to the Sedona method. Mm. When I... So good. When I want to let go, Okay, what's this emotion that I'm feeling? Oh, I feel anger toward the person. Okay, Mm -hmm. maybe I don't have to forgive them, but could I let this anger go? Mm -hmm. Mm. Would I let it go? Yeah. Could you let it go? When? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is I can let go now, that's what I'm going to do. And you know what's great about the Sedona method is that, um, so it's, you know, it's uh, step number one is, uh, yes, identifying the emotion. Step number two is, could you let that emotion go? And sometimes the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Would you let it go? Mm. Now, sometimes that answer is no, but sometimes it's yes. So sometimes you want to let go of a feeling, but you can't, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and then, yeah, when, w- when will you let it go? And it's, it's weird because I've, I've been using this method for, I don't know, a couple months now. And um, when I find myself saying no to the first question, could I let this go? Mm. And then I find myself saying, like, you know, would you let this go? Yes. If I could let this emotion go, I would absolutely let it go. And when I'd let it go right now, Mm. even though 
in the beginning, I said I couldn't. Mm. By the time I get to the when, it's easier for me to let go of it. That's interesting. You and I have a totally different approach there. Hmm. And I don't think one is better than the other at all. I, I just, I've never gotten to a point where I, so I go through the, the same Sedona method. You identify the emotion. In fact, you even hold on to it loosely, right? It's, it's not saying yeah. get rid of this, but I feel angry right Experience now. Experience it. Yes. Yeah, immerse yourself. Make room for whatever that yes. feeling is. It could be joy. It could be anger. It could be sadness. It could be grief. It could be courageousness. Mm-hmm. It can be lust. Whatever it is, yeah. experience that. It could be happiness. Yes. That's what's so wild about the Sedona Method mm-hmm. is it's not just about negative emotions. No, it's a, in fact, he goes through, uh, the book is called The Sedona Method. It's by Hale Dwodskin. We're going to get him back on the podcast this year. Uh, we originally had something scheduled with him, but I think he had a fall or something happened. Yeah, and he got sick or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, he wasn't able to make it, but... Uh, what a great book. I mean, in fact, just this past week, I was talking to Ella. I broke out the book and I was going through the nine different emotional states with mm, Ella. Yeah. And it, because I wanted her to form an understanding of all of these emotions that she feels. And because I told her, hey, your emotions aren't real. They are a response to some sort of belief you have about the outside world. And she's like, no, they're real. I could feel them. <laughs> And I said, yes, I'm not invalidating them. I acknowledge that you feel those emotions. I want you to know they don't exist in the world outside of you. And you aren't Mm -hmm. wrong for having these emotions. It's not wrong to be sad. It's okay to feel grief, to feel disappointed, to feel a sense of lack, Mm. of vulnerability, of insecurity, whatever it might be. It's okay to feel that, right? But when you feel it, can I let this go? And for you, you might, it sounds like, Ryan, you often say, yeah, uh, no, I can't let this go. Not often, but there are some times when I'm really upset about something. Well, here's the thing. The can I let this go is a prompt for me that is really saying, I know I can let this because I've let go of every emotion I've ever felt before. Hmm. And so can you let this go for me is always a yes. Right. Every time. And, and I'm not saying that, that it should be a yes. I'm just saying I'm so fascinated that we have this different approach to it. And then, okay, can I let this go? I can always let it go because I know I've let go of every bit of grief I've ever had. At some mm. point, I've let it go. Even if just for a period of time, if I picked it back up, I did let it go for a period of time. Okay, would you let this go? Ooh, yeah, I would. When? No, I'm not ready to let go yet. So that's mm-hmm. usually my bottleneck is like, Interesting. I'm still, hold- I, yes, I can. Yes, I would let this go. But I need to hold on to this for five more minutes. Mm. And then... You can let it go. Exhale the emotion. So the question, can you let this go? I agree with you in this sense. If I ask that question to myself, um, can I eventually let this go? Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. Do I have the ability to let this go? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I just take it for, you know, can I let this go like right now? Can I let this go right now? And there are some times when I'm really, you know, upset or anxious or whatever it is. And it's like, God, I'd love to let this go right now, but mm-hmm. I am not able to. What I, heck yes, I would. When I do it right now. Yeah. But like just, you know, telling myself that doesn't magically make it disappear. Although the Sedona method is kind of magical though. Yeah, and what's yeah. interesting there is your interpretation of the question because mm-hmm. the question was never, can I let this go right now? Right. Or can I, and the question was never, can I eventually let this go? Right. It's right. just, can I let this go? Yeah. And and the way that I interpret that is, do I have the ability to let this anger go? Okay, sure. I know I've let go of anger before. It's like when you're at the gym and you're lifting weights, Ryan, you're like, 
yes, I can bench press 100 pounds, but... <laughs> But if your shoulders hurt, maybe I can't do it right now. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and understanding that, like, I may not have that ability right now, but I know that mm. I can let this go. Mm. And that's freeing. It's empowering because in the moment, it feels like I'm going to be angry for the rest of my life. Right. I'm going to be disappointed for the rest of my life. But as soon as I reframe it, have I ever let go of anger? Well, yeah, of course I have. Yeah. What a stupid question. Right. We never stop to ask ourselves that question. Alabama, let's do one more question from the Patreon live stream. Patrons, thank you so much for being here. You keep the podcast 100% advertised. Yes, y'all are awesome. This question comes from Kaya. She says, I recently moved to a new country, and as an introvert, I'm finding it hard to make friends. I don't think it's necessary to force myself to form friendships, but any insights on opening myself up to meeting new people? Ryan is the resident extrovert. <laughs> I'm the friendship king, they call me. No, I mean, so, yeah, I, I agree with what you said, that there's no reason to force yourself into making new friends. So your question is, if you did want to make some new friendships, like, how could you open up to that? Is, am I understanding that correctly? That's what it sounds like. Yeah, so, I mean, and in, in the modern world, there's so many different ways to make connections with people. Um, you know, I feel like pre-internet, it was church and work and school. Mm-hmm. Like those were the places to meet people. Yeah. And now, uh, with the internet, I mean, you can get on, um, meetup.com and you could find a group of people who are interested in knitting. Um, you could go to a local library, uh, and, and look at their cork board and, see what local meetups there are that happen at your library. So the question that I would be asking if I wanted to open up towards uh, new friendships, I would be asking the type of people that I want to bring into my life. Hmm. What kind of people do I want to bring into my life? And then from there, I would then form an approach to how I would bring those people into my life. So if it's, you know what? I really like snowboarding. I want to hang out with more snowboarders. Hmm. Well, then I would probably go to meetup.com and look for a, a snowboarding group and meet with those folks. Um, People have a similar interest to you. Y- yeah, exactly. I, I, I love what you said earlier about the relationships used to be birthed out of proximity, mm-hmm. right? Convenience. Oh, we happen to go to the same church together. We happen to work at the same cubicle across from one another or we happen to be neighbors. And there's nothing wrong with being friends with those people. In fact, I have some really awesome neighbors on both sides of me now at my current house that wasn't always the case, right? And so I can't rely on proximity alone. And so the question is, what are your common interests? And yes, of course, you can be around people who have similar interests to you. I think even then, that doesn't make for necessarily a meaningful relationship. What makes for a meaningful relationship is how you serve that relationship. Mm -hmm. I would check out our first book, It's called Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life. There's a relationships chapter in there. And we talk about connecting with not just like-minded people, because I think that's a fallacy, but connecting with open-minded people, or as TK would say, active-minded people Mm. who you can challenge in a healthy way, in a way that is empowering to the relationship, not disempowering to the other person. It's not like, uh, well, I'm going to find people who have just the same political beliefs as me Mm -hmm. and we're going to congregate together. No, I don't care about the political beliefs of anyone in this room. I 
I assume that most of the people in this room voted differently from one another mm. in the last election. And I'm totally fine with that because I don't need your beliefs to map onto mine in order for us to have a meaningful experience together. But it always comes back to serving others in some way. How can I help? How can I be of assistance, whether that's my neighbors, my neighborhood, my community, or just a, a group of people online? Mm. Speaking of community, we're not announcing this until next week on the public podcast, but since this is the private podcast, we just announced our next Sunday Symposium, yeah, which is in Los Angeles. So if you want to find a group of open-minded people, there's only 200 people there, but we've talked to so many people who have made connections at these Sunday Symposiums. Mm -hmm. I think we're probably going to do it quarterly uh, for the foreseeable future, although I don't know. This could always be the last one. That is always the case. <laughs> <laughs> I, right. I want to be clear that I'm not promising you we're going to start doing these events quarterly. We've never promised that. Mm -hmm. We've set up this community of open-minded and active-minded people, people who want to congregate around simplicity, about mm -hmm. intentionality. Sundaysymposium.com if you want to come to the event on March 26, 2023. Me, Ryan, TK, who knows, we may even have a special guest. You yeah. can come. Only uh, 200 people in. There are some tickets still left. Well, at least as of this recording. It's a great event. I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's one of my favorite things we did last year was uh, starting the Sunday Symposium. And, you know, here's what I'll say about like-minded people. Sometimes I want to be around like-minded people. Sometimes I do want to sit around and discuss something that I have a genuine interest in. And I want to hear other people's perspectives on this thing that we all have a genuine interest in. The problem is when you hang out with only like-minded people, you are putting yourself in a bubble. And when you put yourself in a bubble, um, well, bubbles burst really easy, let me tell you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and what, what a great point. And so putting yourself in a bubble will do several things for you. It will reinforce your own beliefs. Mm -hmm. And our beliefs are often the root of our discontent. And so putting yourself in a bubble can root your discontent even further, mm. right? Mm-hmm as opposed to challenging your beliefs so you can let go of the beliefs. We talked to Kapil Gupta about this. When, Why does it matter what your beliefs are? You can believe the earth is flat, but it doesn't really help you. And by the way, even if you believe the earth is round, that so, doesn't change the truth either. Doesn't help you either, yeah. Right, and so I will say that one last thing about cultivating new relationships is the more you need those relationships in your life, the more difficult, paradoxically, it is to have those relationships in your life. Because people sense a, a particular kind of neediness. Oh, I really need this relationship in my life. If you need that other person, what happens? You don't mean to, but you cling to them. Yeah. And when you cling to someone, they feel smothered. They feel strangled. They feel like, oh, this person? I don't like their energy. I don't like their vibe. Oh, please stop clinging to me. But if you don't need them, then you hold the relationship loosely. Mm. And when you're holding the relationship loosely, that's when you both grow together. But also there may be a time where the relationship bifurcates as well. It's okay that someone comes into your life for a chapter and that chapter can be a day, it can be an hour, it can be a month, it could be a decade. For me and Ryan, it's been over three decades now. And what a beautiful path that has been. But I won't cling to this relationship because if I do, eventually what'll happen is 
I'll get dragged in one direction or I'll accidentally drag mm. Ryan in my direction. And that makes for misery. And you don't want that in any relationship you have. You don't want to cause misery to the person you're with. Well, a surefire way to cause misery is to cling. Mm. Speaking of vibes, Ryan, for our added value segment this week, I've got a vibe for you. Mm. The song you hear in the background right now, this is a song called Modest by Mike and Skis from their new EP. It's called Why Not Us. It's a great EP. I uh, It's the vibiest song I've heard in a long time. And it's when I sent it to you, Ryan, I, I said it's kind of like pop singer-songwriter, kind of country without the twang, mm -hmm. with a sprinkle of hip-hop in it. It defies all genre, but you play it and you're like, yeah, this is it. Check out Modest by Mike and Skis. Big thanks to Lori Gottlieb for joining us today. You can check out her podcast. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Also, maybe you should talk to someone, The Journal. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. That is our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Alabama Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time.
life right now Send one of your flights and I'll jump on it We finish what we started We need something modest in your life right now Girl, we 